Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week, I don't have a co-host per se. Instead, I want to bring you a special type of episode I'm really hoping to be able to share with you all on a regular basis. This week, instead of having a guest on to share a true crime story with, I instead interviewed someone with a very intimate connection to the story. I'm going to tell you all about. The stories I've told you all about so far, I do believe have been very interesting, thrilling, and insightful, and I hope you all have found them that as well. But there are really only a handful of people who experience these stories themselves and can share what it was really like to go through such a wild experience from a firsthand perspective. So this week, you are going to hear this story through their own words. But first, of course, we have wine to drink. So this week we are drinking Three Finger Jack's Cabernet Sauvignon from Lodi, California. It's named after the notorious outlaw who roamed California during the gold rush. The vineyard says the wine is inspired by his daring character and offers immense structure and hearty flavors to stand proud on its own or alongside a grilled flank steak. So let's drink it. The best sound. Love that. Um, so since I have no one to talk about our wine of the week with, I figured I would take some time to talk about some of my favorite wine investments on these kinds of episodes. If you listen to our first episode, you may remember I talked with Claire about my wine aerator. My mom actually bought it for me as a gift, and it is a game changer, I promise you. So according to Orange Coast Winery, you're supposed to let your wine aerate for at least 30 minutes, meaning you set it out after opening it. And the purpose of this is to let the wine oxidate, meaning the air interacts with the wine to allow the flavors to soften. But of course, letting the wine aerate for too long has the opposite effect and will make the flavors go sour. But an aerator does all that work for you instantly. There are a few different kinds, but mine looks kind of like a funnel of sorts, and it comes with a filter on top to take out any sediment. All you do is pour the wine directly into the aerator over your glass so you don't have to wait another second to relax, unwind, and drink your wine and listen to some crimes. But according to the Sonoma Wine Garden, aerating wine too much can actually filter out too many flavors and aromas, so you really only want to do this if the bottle has been uncorked for less than 30 minutes. So let's um, drink this bad boy. So cheers to you all for sticking through with me uh, for the last five episodes. So cheers to you. Ooh. Okay, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the wine, but this is a really interesting blend of flavors. This is, it's a very, hold on, I need to take another sip. It's a very dark, bold red, and I can't put my finger on the flavors here. But it tastes, if this is like a weird way to describe wine, but it tastes very dark and I don't know how to put my finger on it, but it's very, very interesting. And I also have to say that the bottle um, looks very, um, it's like shorter than a wine bottle normally is, but wider too. So, oh, I don't know. I'm like really, I definitely like it. I'm just trying to figure out what it is that I like about it. Well, anyways, while I figure that out, let's get on to our story this week. This week, I am going to tell you a story about the consequences of digging further than people would like you to. And I'm not talking literally digging, I mean figuratively. This story gets at the heart of what happens when the people meant to be enforcing the laws are also the ones who are breaking them. This week, I talked to someone who found out the answer to that question the hard way and paid deeply for it. 
Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Adam Sulfridge, the reporter who took down the Whitley County Sheriff. Whitley County, Kentucky is tucked in the southeastern corner of the state. It sits right on the Tennessee line about an hour north of Knoxville. At the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, with a population of about 35,000 at the time, it's known for its natural beauty and being the birthplace of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was a very proud community, a median household income of $26,000. But in 2007, the opioid epidemic was just beginning to rear its ugly head. Kentucky was among the worst hit in the country for drug overdoses, and Whitley County in particular was the fourth highest in the state for pill distributions per capita. In all, about 308 pills were distributed per 100 people in the county. They nicknamed this stretch of Interstate 75 that runs through the county the pill pipeline. Pretty much everyone in the area was affected by drug activity and if you didn't know someone who was caught up in the drug ring, you at least knew someone whose home or car had been broken into by someone who was. Adam told me it was a crisis that had been affecting him deeply. A lot of people were suffering from a substance abuse disorder at the time from prescription pills. And um, again, a lot of my classmates were, were abusing prescription drugs when we were still in high school. Uh, and then... Uh, Earlier in 2009, my aunt had died from an overdose. And so you saw it just, I mean, it was really starting to impact the, the community. Um, you couldn't not see the impacts of it. But back in 2009, you could go to Florida with two or three people in your car and come back with a thousand pills. You just go down there and uh, complain of back pain. And they called those pill mills or pain clinics. So really anybody with enough money and reliable enough transportation would go to Florida and you'd come back and you could be a drug dealer. You know, at the at the time, it was just uh, a pain pill problem, pretty much is uh, what people would talk about there. Oh, so-and-so was on pain pills. Uh, they got addicted to pain pills. And I just saw the devastation in the community. And I've always been a very community-oriented person, just... I guess how I was raised. And so whenever I saw friends abusing prescription pills, and by that time I'd actually seen a friend innocently become physically dependent because they were legitimately prescribed to that friend. So I was well aware that the, you know, what was coming down the pop, I guess, because I could kind of see the writing on the wall with it. But it was seemingly lucky that the county had a sheriff who was looking to put an end to it. Elected in 2002, Sheriff Lawrence Hodge was constantly boasting about being tough on drugs. He was on local news stations on a regular basis talking about the latest drug bust. But in hindsight, all of that talk was likely a big ruse, a show. Early in Hodge's career, a federal agent told 60 Minutes that they had their eyes on Hodge. Agents with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives suspected Hodge himself, the drug buster, may be operating outside the law and be caught up with drug dealers, but they could never prove it. 
And they weren't the only ones with their eyes on Hodge. Earlier in her tenure with the local newspaper, Samantha Swindler had heard rumors about Hodge, too. She worked as an editor for the Times-Tribune. In the summer of 2007, the sports reporter for the paper came barreling into this newsroom with a bold rumor that was spreading around town. He told Samantha that he heard you could buy guns from a local barbershop, where Hodge had also worked on the side. She was baffled by this accusation, but Samantha still takes it seriously as a good reporter would. She starts asking around, filing public records requests, and even asking the sheriff about it. The sheriff permits for the paper access to the documents Samantha is asking about, but he says he won't let her look through them, saying he doesn't trust her and accuses her of going on this big witch hunt throughout the county and of working for a local attorney who was suing the sheriff at the time. Eventually, after going through the state attorney general's office, Samantha herself is granted access to the documents she requested, and they find huge gaps in the sheriff's office evidence law. They found months where nothing was booked into evidence, despite her knowing that there were arrests made and evidence seized because, well, she was a reporter. She was writing about it, like, every day. Suspicious of what she found through her open records request, she tries to assign the story to a reporter, if not write it herself, but none of her reporters are brave enough to take on the most powerful law enforcement official in Whitley County. That is, until Adam Selfridge comes along. In 2009, Adam is 20 years old, going into his sophomore year at the local university. He needs a job, so he ends up working as a stringer for the Times-Tribune. Now, a stringer is basically like a freelancer, someone who gets paid by inch written in the paper. It also allows the paper to assign full-time reporters to big, important stories without missing stories that may have been glossed over because of staffing reasons. And I think it was $5 for each picture that I took that got printed. The first weekend I covered a wreck, so that was like my first breaking news. I went to a bluegrass festival and got some good art there. I did a little write-up on it, really focused. It was true community journalism, talking about the economic impact of this bluegrass festival. And then there was one other community event, but she she really liked it, and she hadn't found any you know full-time reporter so she asked me if I'd be interested in trying that out. Any job sounded really good at the time, and I took the job. Adam heard about a state audit being done on the sheriff's office, which cited him for keeping insufficient records and not submitting reports to the state as required. The audit also showed the office was missing about $125,000. And for people in Whitley County, Kentucky in 2009, that was a lot of money. I mean, the recession just hit. People are struggling, and I mean, big time. So born and raised in the area, Adam's interest was piqued. So he asked Samantha if he could look into it. Growing up in a poor county, Whitley County is technically, by federal government standards, it's considered a distressed county still in central Appalachia. And I guess coming from a, a poor family background, uh, you know, whenever I saw that, and as a student of political science, too, that was one of my uh, majors is political science. So that interested me a lot. I had no idea that she had already tried investigating the sheriff and it hadn't gone anywhere. So she was tickled to have anybody interested in poking around. Uh, and so to my surprise, she kind of turned me loose on such a big story. But I think she also knew that I was 
you know, look, I'm unapologetically nerdy. I use it in a good, uh, use the word in a good sense. Um, I enjoy that kind of stuff. I will dig through books and, um, you know, which everyone kind of came to learn about me. But uh, I wanted to find out where is this money? What's happening to it? Because we can't afford that. He filed public records requests himself. And using Samantha's notes she took on Sheriff Hodge's evidence logs, he compared them to arrest warrants and court documents. He slaved over the cases for months, and people in the community started taking notice. Samantha had long-standing questions about evidence. And also to kind of set the background a little bit here, when... When I was a senior in high school, there was already law enforcement corruption unfolding when, yep, in 2007. So when I was a senior, you know, there, was a, there were hints of this law enforcement corruption starting to come out. The local police chief had resigned after either a failed drug test or refusing to take a drug test. Then another officer uh, he either quit or was fired, and it was drug-related. And another one had been arrested in a neighboring county with uh, a lot of, best I recall, drugs and uh, and money. So, you know, we everyone in the community knew that something in the law enforcement arena was not right here. I was seeing a good department after that police chief had resigned. A new chief came in who very by the book. Um, he he was, for a while, he and his department were the only law in the county. I was seeing how they were doing things. I was picking up on law enforcement procedures. And then in the course of that, I remember that department, they, they had got a bunch of evidence together, including pills, and they burned it. That was, you know, a, a proper way to dispose of evidence that was no longer needed. But I also learned these little things like how it had to be sent to the crime lab. Because even if it looks like an Oxycontin, doesn't mean that it is. So you got to send it to the lab and get it verified. So I started learning how it should be done. Because there was at least one good department here that I could learn from how it should be done. And then through my own research, I found some of the laws. And um, based on what Samantha had said about these gaps in the, the evidence... I don't really know where I got the idea to do it. I know that for you to have charged them, there better be a gun somewhere. I just came up with the idea of, I guess, reverse engineering an evidence log. Because Samantha knew there had been gaps. And we saw one department properly disposing of evidence. And the sheriff had previously said that he just flushed it. Which, fun fact, the EPA says not to do. Bad for the, the water. Well, to go backwards, to do that reverse engineering, I went down to the courthouse. I was already by that time used to pulling citations. You know, you see somebody arrested over the weekend, you go down there, get the arrest citation, read about it, and do your story on it. And they were all kept in filing cabinets. This gigantic room, just filing cabinet after filing cabinet. And fortunately, they were sorted by misdemeanor and felony. So I went through felonies beginning, you know, at that time, probably August, September of 2009, I just started flipping through case by case by case. They were all in envelopes. And you would see on the front of the envelope, it would tell you who the arresting officer was, of course, the defendant information, 
and their charges. So I'd go through and every time I saw possession of a controlled substance or anything dealing with a gun, I would pull that out, photocopy it, uh, or take notes about it. And so through that pretty tedious work, I was able to essentially, if nothing else, I'd have the date and a defendant name that something should have been taken off of them. And then in the case where, you know, a, a person actually wrote more information, I, I would have the quantity. Even if the only thing that we had was a, another like paper, a paper case, uh, even if it was about record keeping, that would be something because you, you know, if you want to win a case in court, you got to have that chain of custody. And so that, you know, that's what I started doing. I, I just went through all of those files and I basically reverse engineered an evidence log so that I would know everything they should have. Then we could compare it to what they claimed they had taken. If I had not had that access, I couldn't have done what I did. I could not have reverse engineered that evidence log. If I had to ask for every document that I wanted to look at, then at least two people in that room would have known what I was looking at. When I when I didn't have to ask specifically for them, I got to be the only person who knew what I was looking at. You might know what, what filing cabinet I was in, what drawer I was in, but I didn't have somebody hovering over me to know exactly what case I looked at all the time or what I was writing down. And wouldn't you know it, the head of the court office there, the clerk, all of a sudden, um, reporters are no longer allowed back there. And if you want something, you know, you you have to go through an employee to get it. And also, I was told that um, I was specifically referenced that, you know, if I came in asking for anything, I would deal with him. So there was a barrier put up there to, uh, to me being able to access stuff. Um, you know, what's the strategic value of that? Blocking my access, you know, and also be able to glean information about what is Adam up to. In the course of my early reporting, I guess I built pretty decent rapport with law enforcement who started hinting at things. There were a lot of hints of um, things that weren't right. Other officers, to much to their credit, good officers would start saying things like, you should look at this. This one was funny. Um, you know, this was a big case and nothing ever happened with it. Or... You know, some, some would be that open. Others would just casually, no, I never saw whatever happened to that one case. That guy had a lot of dope on him. I don't know whatever happened to it. Over a course of time, I could leave my notebook sitting at the courthouse while I went and did stuff, and I might come back and there'd be case information sitting there. Just amongst my other papers, something I never requested. I never asked anybody to copy it. I at times didn't even know what the case was, but you know, on its face, looking at it, you could tell pretty quickly why somebody wanted me to know about it. And, uh, so that started opening up yet another avenue. So we had a lot to go on and really 
I'm thankful that we did not get that interview and we did not get to sit down and look into the evidence log at that time. Adam and Samantha say the only record the sheriff's office had been taking was in a one half inch thick paperback notebook. And by comparing those records to records he had taken on arrests and calls made otherwise, Adam finds cases where arrests were made with dozens of guns or hundreds of grams of drugs, but nothing that was ever logged into evidence, just like what Samantha had found. One case in particular stuck out. A case from June of 2004. Sheriff's deputies executed a search warrant on Richard Benson's home in connection to a drug and child pornography investigation. They found 18 guns, 75 knives, and several illegal substances. Now, Richard was a felon, so he shouldn't be having any guns at all, so this was a red flag as is. But the other items seized were, of course, the icing on the cake. Richard is arrested and booked, and the guns, knives, and drugs are taken by deputies, but Adams finds that not a single gun was logged into evidence. But in Richard's file is something peculiar. It's a $25,000 cashier check made out directly to the sheriff's office. That was something that was something brought right to me that said, you need to look at this case because this does not happen. The way that this played out just does not happen. And sure enough, you know, you go down to the courthouse, you look the guy's name up, and he's got all of these charges. Uh, I remember the front of that case jacket, all of these charges. And then you open it up, and it's talking about all the things seized from his house. There was actually a, a little inventory, a handwritten inventory on that one. So... From the start, this case is different from all the others. Every drug you can imagine, it was like he had a buffet there to entertain with based on what they accused him of having. And then he's also a millionaire with high-dollar guns and knives. And so you keep flipping through, and you see multiple felony charges. And then you, you come across a cashier's check written to the sheriff's department, and this is in the, the case jacket, and it says that it's a donation, $25,000. So that was extremely odd, and all these felonies were listed, and then he pleaded guilty to misdemeanor crimes. I had people come to me and just tell me that it was part of a larger pattern, that there were more people that if I looked, I would find more cases of substantial amounts of drugs and money being involved, and they would follow the same pattern of pleading guilty to misdemeanors and getting two years probation. Armed with thousands of documents, hundreds of cases, and dozens of missing pieces of evidence, Samantha Adam and the Times Tribune were slowly building a case against the sheriff. All they needed was to bring what they found directly to Sheriff Hodge himself. So after weeks to months of putting off Adam and Samantha and Sheriff Hodge saying that he can't talk about that Benson case, he finally agrees to do an interview on November 30th, 2009. I had bought myself a little digital recorder and um, I put it in my, I was wearing a dress shirt and I stuck it in my front pocket and in my methods class at political science, we had to research things the old school way, go to the library and use little index cards 
and write down our references on index cards. So I taken one of those cards, put it in the front pocket in front of that recorder to kind of shield the uh, shape and also it had a little red light that I could not turn off. So um, I did that and you know, we, we walked in. You'd like to think maybe like a movie or something, some big planning or some kind of pep talk. We just, we just walked in. We, we knew what we had. We were confident in the research that had been done in terms of money, in terms of the evidence. We had a general idea of what questions we wanted to ask. But at the end of the day, going into any interview, you never know what the hell is going to happen. During the interview, they said they never expected to last 90 minutes. Samantha and Adam bring Sheriff Hodge questions about the office's evidence logging process, the state audit, and that 2004 arrest of Richard Benson, which Sheriff Hodge said he just couldn't talk about. Adam also gave me parts of the interview which were recorded without Sheriff Hodge's knowledge, legal under Kentucky law. Adam said Sheriff Hodge looked confident, practically lounging back with his feet up on the desk. He likely thought he was going to have these two 20-something-year-old reporters come into his office and play off any of their questions, and they wouldn't even know the difference. But Adam and Samantha had done their homework. So, you know, he had a reputation, and a uh, reputation for being pretty hot-headed. Suspicion of being under the influence, having his own drug problem— that you know, there was a lot of suspicion out in the community about that. And so I remember you know, we, we prepared as much as I guess we could. You know, kind of part of the strategy was to, to play dumb, you know, uh, just play dumb, try to let him talk. Uh, you know, most reporters, you don't want to become the story. And <laughs> I certainly never wanted to become the, the story in this. Didn't work out too well, but... Um, you know, you, you don't want to become the story and you want to let them do the talking. And I, you know, it's kind of the same with criminal investigation. Let them talk. At this point, Adam and Samantha really start pushing Sheriff Hodge on the raid on Richard Benson's home, including that $25,000 check. I don't even know who Rick Benson is. He was a big case. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah. How many guns was it? 17. Oh, Rick Benson? Yeah. They would have just it was difficult. It was um, very difficult to play dumb. Anybody who's part of a case with a millionaire who's got 17 high-dollar firearms, and again, the inventory list read like he had a buffet of dope. So whoever showed up, whatever you wanted... It presumably was there because they claimed they took it from the home. Um, you remember that case. I don't care if you're a 40-year veteran or a rookie. You're going to remember that case. So when when I'm asking about that and you get follow-up or you know a question to my question of, was that the one out at the lake? Yeah, it was the lake house. Yep, that, that would be the one. But from an investigative standpoint, those Benson guns, I had been told that they had been sold, and you just can't do that. It's not like when you seize a car. You can't just, you know, sell them like that. So he said ATF would have took those. And, you know, when, when he said that, I had an idea of what 
what that meant, um, how big of a statement that was. My, my sources were very reliable that not only did the sheriff sell some of those guns, but that the feds knew that he had sold some of those guns. Now, why nothing had been done on that, I, to this day, don't know. But that's that was my understanding at the time, was that even the federal government was aware of it or suspicious of it. I think it's very odd that you get $25,000 donated to you by Benson. I don't know who the hell works that out, but there's something funny about it. I don't think that happens often. Do you? Like, that's the one on the lake, right? Yeah. That's one of the 17 guns and all that. And also with that one, none of the knobs were logged in. I know you can't talk about it, but $25,000 cashier check to the sheriff's department. That seems like a legal way to buy yourself out of court. That's what you call court is. You get it right on the head. That was shocking. That's all a court is. As if there wasn't a problem with it. Samantha and Adam left the interview really unsure of what to make of what they just talked about with Sheriff Hodge for an hour and a half. But one part of the interview sticks out to them, something they feel like they probably should check on, something that could take the story into a completely different direction. At this point, Adam and Samantha are still reflecting on their interview with Sheriff Hodge, and they're trying to figure out what they may be able to publish after months of research and investigations. As we left, neither one of us were excited. You might, you know, think of that like a, a movie scene or something where, like, you're leaving and you're excited, you got it, you know you had good stuff. We, I think we were just happy to get out of there. Um we knew we just had a lot to process, see what in that 90 minutes fit what we had. I think I stayed up till about two o'clock that night, um, typing my own transcript of it, making sure that I typed it verbatim. Because I, you know, I really needed to have something to look at. Adam decides before this story runs that he's going to need to check in on those guns Hodge said were seized by the ATF. So he told me he used his sources to get in touch with the ATF agent who was involved in that investigation at the time. I asked him what he had done with those guns. That it was my understanding they were high dollar guns. Is this big case? I was looking into that case because there were some strange things about the case. And... I remember he uh, he took issue with the fact that the sheriff had said that they took those guns. And, you know, this wasn't a recorded call. Um, but to the best of my memory, I really think that he said something like he said, what? Or, you know, he was shocked. And he said, like, he, he said that. Or did he really say that, that we took those? And he, he told me that he had to get off phone with me and that he's calling uh, D.C., and he told me, though, that he would have a statement for us. And he called back that night and said on the record that ATF never took those guns. So, you know, now we've gone from shoddy record keeping with a, a statement that ATF took 17 firearms that can't be accounted for. And now Uncle Sam saying, nope, 
Never took them. This was all Adam and Samantha needed to run with this story. On the weekend of December 5th, 2009, they published their first article with the headline, Sheriff's Audit Raises Questions About Seizures. The article details the months of missing evidence and raises questions about where the evidence had gone off to, including background information from the ATF agent saying the agency had never opened an investigation into the guns seized from Richard's home and had never taken the guns either. Later that week, Adam published another article with the headline, Sheriff Discounted Personal Tax Bills. In the article, the paper uses even more quotes from that November 30th interview. This time, the article raises questions about processes he uses in approving his own taxes. The article details how the sheriff was short about $125,000 in taxes due to the state. The state audit I mentioned earlier found the sheriff, who is the chief tax collector in Kentucky had paid taxes late enough to accrue late fees, but instead of getting a late fee, the sheriff had given the office an early payment discount. Now, according to the Times Tribune article, the sheriff does have the power to waive late fees, but does not have the power to give early discounts. The auditor said it best. As quoted in the story, they said even if the sheriff had paid the tax bills on time, he wouldn't have gotten the kind of discount he had been giving himself, but these bills were paid months late. Samantha and Adam asked about that during the interview. But what she's saying is that your own personal bills, you paid them when they were actually late due and you got a 2% discount on one. Yeah. Why? I should have done that. That's my bad. I guess. You, you print that to a lot of people who, you know, you pay your taxes here to try to get into that early period or even the face value. It ends at the end of December of every year. So you got the holidays. It's a really tough time to pay taxes. And I don't care who you are around here. You hear that somebody making that kind of money working in the office where you pay your taxes didn't pay it on time and they got the discount. People are going to be pissed. Their investigations at this point were going pretty well. And so they were persisting in reporting what they were able to corroborate through the documents they received through public records requests, the cases that were flagged to, um, during their investigative process and comparing that to the information they got from their interview with Sheriff Hodge. They decide to file a public records request on December 15th, 2009 for information specifically on those 18 missing guns seized from Richard Benson's home. They wanted to know exactly where they were, and if the sheriffs did still have them, they wanted to see them for themselves. But one day, just less than a week after they sent their request, Adam says he gets a call that gets him out of bed. Early in the morning on December 21st, 2009, the day after Kentucky state law says the sheriff's office had to respond to their request, Adam gets a call from a local judge saying the sheriff's office had been broken into. I don't even know what I thought at the time. I really don't. I just remember that I got up out of bed. I knew that would be something you as a reporter would go cover. Um, I'm not sure really if it crossed my mind yet what the significance of it went down there and it was definitely a bizarre scene door shut. All these people are outside the courthouse and it's December morning. Um, so these employees of the, the sheriff's department, they're outside the sheriff himself's outside. And I just walked up to the clerk and I asked her, I was like, I guess, I guess we're not getting our response to the open records request today. <laughs> and 
she was not happy about that, but she, you know, said no. I mean, doing what a reporter does. The sheriff standing out on the steps of the courthouse. His office has been broken into, and he's smoking a cigarette. And you got to do what you got to do there. I, I asked him, I was like, I assume there's no comment, but do you have any comment about your sheriff's department uh, being broken into him? And if looks could kill, but he, you know, he kind of held back and he, he just said no comment and nothing out of the way at all. And I was walking off and Samantha was on the phone with me and she, she was pressing me at the time. She says, you know, ask him, ask him about the prior break-ins, ask him about the prior break-in. And so I turned back around and she, to the best of my knowledge, she didn't phrase it this way, but what came out of my mouth in that moment was, Sheriff, how many times has your office been broken into? And fair question, but I just remember the look he gave me right there on the courthouse steps. And he said, go get fucked. And I had not heard that phrase that way before. Um, I don't know if that's more common, but I I just had never heard it before. And I legitimately asked him, you know, what did, what did you say? Because I was that confused. And then he said, go fuck yourself. The ATF says they had asked the sheriff's office for illicit evidence and other items they believed to be missing, but the federal agency says it initially received nothing from the sheriff. But months later, the ATF eventually collects illicit evidence from the sheriff, and wouldn't you know it, what happens to be missing from the sheriff's office? But the guns Adam and Samantha were legally able to inspect the day before this alleged break-in. That's when things really start to change for Adam, and I don't just mean for him, I mean for the people looking into the sheriff at this point and keeping an eye on Adam at the same time. He was in the shower shortly after the break-in when he gets a call from a state officer telling him to leave his house immediately. And I answered the the phone and uh, as I asked where I was, told him I was at home, I was getting ready to go to class, and I was told, forget class, you need to come down to the local police department. To leave my house, I remember that too. I was told to leave my house, so it wasn't even, I wasn't even asked to come to the police department. I was told to leave my house. When I got down there, I had to wait, and I waited for a while, and some people from Kentucky State Police showed up, and then people from uh, ATF showed up, and that's when I was told that there was a credible threat against my life. At some point, the federal government had somebody around the sheriff when he was talking about he was going to kill me. Best of my recollection, they told me that this person like said in so many words three or four different times, you don't really mean that. And he was making it very clear that he really did mean it and specifically made the comment that he had done been by my house and knew where I lived. And basically that was the first time that Anybody broach the topic of, you know, leave, we we need you gone. Adam shakes off the federal agency's request for him to be relocated into a safer location. I mean, he has school to worry about. He's in the middle of this huge investigation. I mean, the witness relocation program, not even an option for him. 
Nonetheless, they continue to report this huge series of reports that are incredibly damaging to the sheriff's office. On the weekend of January 23rd, Adam and Samantha published a report showing that a majority of felony cases in the county did not lead to felony drug convictions. They were either lowered to misdemeanors or dismissed altogether when an officer failed to show up in court. In fact, there were zero felony drug cases that resulted in felony drug convictions in all of 2009. Meanwhile, other departments were convicting dozens of felony drug cases. When they asked Sheriff Hodge about this fact during that November 30th interview, he says that there's a chance people who got off of felony drug convictions may be working as informants, but of course, could not go into any more detail than that. On February 22nd, Adam reports that the ATF is taking over the investigation into the break-in at the sheriff's office due to the number of firearms that may be involved. And in that article, the ATF says something interesting. They clearly throw doubt on the legitimacy of the break-in, saying, Whoever broke into the sheriff's office and stole all the evidence had apparently unlocked three doors and stole evidence that was stored in Hodge's personal office with no signs of forced entry. The ATF also publishes a list of firearms that were reported missing by the sheriff's office. There were 78, including 16 of the guns that were seized during the raid on Richard Benson's home. The ATF also says of the evidence, including guns and drugs, that it appeared, quote, some may have been disposed of by the sheriff's office without keeping any records. The competing paper was a, a safe place for him. And there were some things written that, you know, uh, cast doubt on our reporting. I do recall that pretty much any excuse he wanted to use, um, they were they seemed more than happy to, to run it. And one was to blame the break-in on us, to say that we had somehow, through our reporting, exposed his inferior storage abilities in the courthouse. And basically he had said that when we reported that, um, you know, he kept his evidence in a cracker jack box or something like that, that every crook, thief, dopehead uh, in the whole area was going to see that as an opportunity. As scathing report after scathing report comes out about the sheriff, things start to get unsettling for Adam and Samantha. I do recall Samantha, her home one day, she had returned home and there was snow on the ground. And there were footprints going around her home and to this day, still unexplained. I used to run a lot more than I do now, uh, like to, you know, eight to 10 miles a day. I remember running at night and I had a police officer pull up beside me, scared the hell out of me. And he kind of yelled at me and just, uh, you know, a friendly officer, but he is still yelling at me, telling me, you know, what a good way that would be. Uh, to get myself killed. And then I do remember it was hot, probably July hot, uh, you know, in Kentucky. And I went down to the courthouse, still doing like normal reporter type stuff. And I'd left my windows cranked. And I got a call from a federal agent who, again, friendly, meaning well, but kind of yelled at me. And he brought it to my attention that by leaving the window cranked so my car wouldn't be over 100 degrees when I went back to it, he just said, you know, that'd be a great way to, you know, you get pulled over two miles down the road and you're going to have a little bit of dope in the floorboard 
that's come through that cracked window and you're going to be in the newspaper because you're getting arrested for possession. And then also there was just the general fear of this guy still had a badge. Some of his allies still had badges who were, you know, under that cloud of suspicion. And I do recall whenever I was first offered relocation to go live in a motel back in December, you know, they, they made it clear also that, um, I was not to pull over for any police officer. Uh, if I had blue lights behind me, I was not to pull over. I was to call 911 and I was to continue driving, just a regular, normal, at the speed limit driving. And I was not to pull over until I had a state police trooper with me. At this point, both Adam and Samantha had bought guns. After all, they had reason to believe that the people who could potentially put their lives in danger had guns. It was their job to. By May of 2010, word had gotten around about Sheriff Hodge and his work just outside of the law, and people were clearly starting to believe it. He had lost his primary in his election for another term, but still had to serve until the rest of the year. This is when things start really heating up, and most of the heat is being directed at Adam, who Sheriff Hodge and his allies have clearly decided to be the point of blame for all of their problems. And also just a short disclaimer, Adam's very good girl starts getting a little anxious in the background of this interview, and she started walking around in the back of the room. So um, just excuse parts of the audio quality, as there is clearly a dog in parts of it. One weekend, I was... I was told that I just needed to leave town again. You know, you gotta, you gotta go. And the explanation basically was that there was so much stuff going on that they didn't have the time to worry about me. And so they, they told me I had to leave. And I remember being so confused by it, but thinking, well, okay, they must mean it. And a federal agent wanted me to meet them out of town, and I still recall this. They gave me um, cash and told me to get out of town. Didn't care really where I went as long as I was pretty far away from Whitley County at that time. And uh, said, you know, go to a buddy's if you want. Use the money to get a motel room, but get out of town. We can't be worried about you this weekend. That's when it hit me. The federal government is meeting me to give me cash because they need me out of town because they can't be worried about my safety. And then I'm getting a follow-up call to make sure that I'm actually out of town. They weren't calling to make sure that I was using their money, you know, for a hotel. They were calling to make sure that I wasn't physically anywhere near my home. And after that, um, you know, when they asked again, (laughs) would you please go for a while that's when I finally just agreed to it. There was a, a meeting with federal agents where they technically made me a witness. Um, it's apparently a process type thing. Like you you get read certain rights as being a, a witness, but they gave me a little card, this little wallet-sized card, and it was fluorescent like orange. Uh, I've still got it somewhere here, but it basically had my name written on it, handwritten. And then there was a phone number on the back of it. And I was told to keep it in my wallet at all times. And uh, people in Kentucky, they'll, they'll know, you know, the orange, it was like a, like your deer tag. And I remember getting that 
and just thinking it basically to me said if you find this body contact the federal government specifically atf he belongs to us um, and we need to know if something happens to him and, and maybe no um I guess it's a little macabre to say if you find this body but if any official out there happened to come across my wallet i guess they wanted to know about it um whether it was with my body or not or if i was in a wreck or anything in any case somebody could have found me they wanted to know and i remember asking them about it and i brought it up kind of as a joke like was that really just a property of sticker that you had me keep in my wallet they didn't laugh about it no it wasn't funny at all in fact this is when adam finds out just how serious it is State and federal investigators tightened their circle on Sheriff Hodge, clearly trying to build their case against him and his allies. And it's in the summer of 2010 that the state assembles a special grand jury to begin hearing their case against Sheriff Hodge. In the meantime, Adam, just 21 years old at the time, beginning his junior year of college, is hidden away at an undisclosed location outside of Whitley County for months. I was close enough, far enough away for them not to worry about me, close enough that if I really, really had to be back in town, I could. So there were a couple of times I came in like for test. My family had no idea where I was. Um, there were a few friends that I told because you kind of got to tell somebody, but um, my, my mom had no idea where I was. Um, and that's something that, you know, looking back on it, I kind of feel, feel bad about now. Um, just at the time, I wasn't thinking about all the hell I was putting people around me through. I don't drink now, and I haven't for over three years. But at the time, I drank quite a bit of, uh, I drank a lot in the motel, or the hotel. I uh, was kind of going crazy. Um, you know, for the longest time there, just a guy in room 42. You know, what, what can you say? Uh, there's not much to do. Not a lot of people that you can really talk to because most people are going to want to know like what you're doing, uh, like your friends from college and everything. So you can't really be like chatting with them because they're going to want to know why you're not in class, why you're missing and all that stuff. Um, yeah, just kind of disappeared for a little bit. And that's really kind of the extent of it. When your only friends are, you know, the night guard who's telling war stories from when he used to be in law enforcement and, you know, sweet lady making continental breakfast, but still, those were my only friends at the time and they didn't know my name. You know, it, it took its toll on me there. And that is one regret though, out of all of this, I'd still do it all again, but I, I regret that I didn't manage the stress in a healthy way. Adam was very open with me about his checkered past with addiction, but he didn't want that to deter anyone who may be feeling inspired by his story. So if you need help, you can call the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Addiction Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. And I'm also going to put that number in our show notes. One time when Adam chooses to leave his hotel room for a day or two in October, he has an interaction that is troubling, to say the least. Two men pull up to his house in Williamsburg, Kentucky. A passenger steps out of the car, walks toward Adam, and reaches into his waistband. 
Adam, at this point, having trained with his pistol for almost a year, shows his too, but did not point it at either of the two men. They clocked the gun and then said, oh, they were just on Adam's dead-end street looking for junk metal, and then left. The very next week, the two men were arrested and taken into custody on federal drug charges. Back in his hotel room around November, Adam begins to notice vans pulling up to his motel's parking lot. He made the assumption that they're probably federal agents based on the coloring and the model of the vans, and he was right. He called his contact with the state who told him they were planning on bringing Sheriff Hodge into custody the very next day. He had been indicted by a grand jury on 21 counts of abuse of public trust and tampering with evidence. Investigators say he later admitted to staging that break-in in December. They found he would take money from the office's drug and alcohol account, which is typically used for undercover drug buys and to pay informants. He wrote nearly $100,000 in checks to himself with the memo, Drug Buy Money. He had a bad addiction to painkillers. He took guns and drugs, seized in investigations, and would sell them to feed his addiction or just give them to friends. The Times-Tribune later reported that he would often cash checks from the drug and alcohol fund right before weekends, holidays, out-of-town trips, and even his wife's birthday. In all, investigators found he had stolen about $158,000 in cash and evidence from the department. Deputies testified at the grand jury hearing that it was impossible to show a chain of custody for evidence in the office because of how evidence was handled. The indictment also said that deputies had a persistent failure to appear in district court, which hampered many prosecutions. Investigators also found he would often corroborate with a local defense attorney, promising his help if defendants cooperated. In the case of Richard Benson, investigators said Hodge struck a deal with him, saying if he went along with their plan, they would make sure Richard was represented by this attorney named Ron Reynolds. As a part of Richard's plea agreement, he would be required to pay $10,000 in cash and make a $25,000 donation to the sheriff's department, if you remember that check in Richard's file. Adam travels to the federal courthouse where Hodge is testifying in one of the cases against him to watch him be taken away. The day Hodge was going to be taken into custody was kind of orchestrated in a very godfather-like way. Not even a, a cop, a local sheriff, can have their gun or their phone or anything on them when they're in the federal courthouse. And so they knew he it would be the opportunity to have him disconnected from all of his associates, his own employees down at the courthouse. And I remember waking up that morning and I had decided I was going back to Whitley County that morning. I was going to see a little bit of what was going down. I guess, you know, I kind of earned that a little bit. I get down to the courthouse. They're waiting on him to walk out of the courtroom. He has no clue what's going on. Anybody who's trying to call him can't get a hold of him. Meanwhile, his expedition, his department-issued expeditions outside the federal courthouse, it's getting searched without his knowledge. The special response team, they're either going to his home or going into the office. They're executing search warrants at all these locations. He can't know anything about it, no way to know about it, no matter how many people are trying to like tell him. I went back to my hotel, but uh, the very next day was a front-page picture of the sheriff with his jacket on, with the, uh, with the you know, sheriff's badge, or I mean, a shield on the, the sleeve. And he had his handcuffed in the front, pointing, uh, being led upstairs or a ramp at his home with a ATF agent escorting him. 
And that was the front page the very next day. By May of that next year, Hodge pled guilty to the federal charges of extorting and laundering money and distributing drugs. He was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. By May of 2013, he would have pled guilty to the charges he was indicted on, the public trust and tampering with evidence charges. Adam told me he can't help but feel like his work at least contributed to the charges. There are people across America who put more time and effort into trying to cheat on their taxes or not even cheat. They put more time into, you know, manipulating that mileage log or something to bring their tax burden down than this guy had put into trying to at least keep an evidence log or any paper trail that looked like a legitimate professional department. It wasn't sexy work, but it it was the majority of the work that got us to that November 30 interview and what ultimately, you know, brought about the first story to quickly move from bad financial record keeping um, to the evidence, which then grew into the strong suspicions that there was extortion and racketeering at play based on all the people with the felonies with sweetheart deals, all of them, again, the same outcome, you know, two years probation for these people. You see the pattern. When all was said and done, Adam had job offers at newspapers across the country, but he decided that he was going to stay in Whitley County. I would have felt like a real son of a bitch if I would have just left here. If I had told everyone how bad things were, and you got to imagine the effect that had on people, whether you you liked the people involved or not, and a lot of these people, they were well-liked. I kind of made the decision that I wanted to be part of the solution, not just be the guy who pointed out how bad everything was. It was kind of like, you know, when they say, don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. I wanted to be part of the solution. Adam went to work for the same sheriff's office he had spent the last year or more investigating, this time under new leadership. He took a job as the public information officer for Hodge's successor, Colin Harrell. And it was there when he realized that the corruption that Hodge went down for likely went much further up in Whitley County government. The office was, it looked like, it looked like the burglary had happened the night before then. It was a mess. And it was deliberate. Um, There were cruisers that you would have had to have just left them sitting outside the courthouse running until every drop of gas was gone. That's the shape it was left in. Um, It was so bad that departments from around Kentucky gave uh, the new sheriff old cruisers to use for parts. And they were driving around cars that probably weren't safe to to even drive. But, you know, they were um, because that's how bad off it was. The Federal agents ended up putting in uh, an affidavit. He had traded department-purchased shotguns for pills for his own consumption. And I, from my involvement in different community stuff, you know, I I had an ability to, I didn't mind. I'd go out and bum money. I went to every place, you know, every corporate store around here. Would you please donate? We need, you know, they need this. And it was to the point that went to Walmart to get cameras donated So they could at least take photos of wrecks, little bitty cameras, but they were better than nothing. Firestone, um, they donated tires 
so that the guys wouldn't be driving around on bald tires. And it was a huge donation, a major help, because then that was maintenance money that got freed up in the budget so you could invest in the vest. And I did apply for a bulletproof vest grant um, and got that. So it was a lot of rewarding stuff, again, to be part of the solution. People, I think, felt a sense of hope that, like, it was going to be all cleaned up, like Uncle Sam's in town and, you know, it's all going to come out now. Didn't happen. If I had a paper still, there's a lot I could write about. The sheriff could not have done what he did solely on his own. And that's the truth that everyone has to admit. It gets difficult when people here have to confront, well, who else dropped the ball? Because in a small town, you know, um, hey, it's it's going to be somebody's brother's cousin's neighbor eventually, or somebody you go to church with, somebody you played ball with. I find out that, um, you know, there's this request out at 911 Center, and you know, being you know, a reporter that I am, and this was a little bit later, but I heard about it at the time, that there was a request for my phone calls, which was really bizarre. I want to say it was like from October-ish of 2009. So when I'm really digging into stuff around that time, all the way until like April of 2010, I think. So all throughout my reporting on that, when I'm digging, when the, the stories come out, but for the period of like October of 09, I think, to about April of 2010, there's a request for every uh, audio of every call to and from the dispatch center, either 911 or their administrative phone lines from my cell phone number, my number. So you can think, well, somebody's trying to figure out what, what's this reporter doing? Well, it was the head of the county who had done it. He wanted to know. He's not a law enforcement official. There is no law enforcement reason to be investigating me anyway. So, okay, curiosity perhaps. Maybe it's curiosity. Maybe it's a fear of the media. Maybe it's an administrative investigation. Maybe you think 911 employees are saying things they're not supposed to say, divulging you know, sensitive information to a reporter. But then if I tell you on that same sheet of paper is the phone number, the cell phone number, and the home phone number of the state police detective who's leading the investigation of the county road supervisor and who was deeply involved also in investigating just corruption in general. The same state police detective who, you know, happened to call me to make sure I was out of town that weekend. Okay, is the administrative head of the county also making sure that 911 dispatchers aren't telling law enforcement anything? Because they're, anything they're not allowed to tell me, they're allowed to tell him. Why do you want to know what was being discussed? That question's never been answered. I've asked it publicly, but it's never been answered. Probably because there is no good reason for it. Adam has since moved on from working in Whitley County government, but still lives in the area. Now he wants to inspire people who are just as outraged as he was about the way their local governments are working. I got attacked for making us look bad. Um, not the guy who did the crimes, but for being the person who brought it out to light. 
because again, that's a little bit, I think of that small community, you know, those are other people's problems. We don't have those problems here. And so in the town where the motto is feels like home, it, it wasn't very popular to, to talk about those kinds of things anymore. It started with some articles piercing that armor. If it wasn't for that first little bit of light and truth coming out, again, I use the phrase piercing the armor, then who knows if everything else that the government needed to make successful cases and prosecutions, who knows um, how long it could have taken or what may have transpired in those years or months even that it may have taken longer, but uh, that's always meant a lot to me. When that small town system of justice, when you really start to push on it, so many people have benefited from it. And that's when it becomes very scary to people because they either have benefited or somebody they know has benefited, especially when every family has been touched by the opioid epidemic. Somehow, somewhere, somebody's going to be, that might be hitting a little too close to home. You know, maybe some other idealistic 20-year-old will, you know, go out there and do something and maybe then they'll force their hand again. Adam has been sober for three years now, and like he said, it's something he really regrets as he looks back on his work more than 10 years ago. So again, if you need help, you can call the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Addiction Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. That's all I have for you this week on Crime Over Wine. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a theory or two, too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.